Uh, hi, Isaac. Hi, Summer. How's it going? It's going really well. How, How about you? I'm good. I'm a little tired. I feel like I say that every time somebody asks me. I'm tired, which is secretly like, I got shit I don't want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I was up late last night thinking about like our mortality and the like gaping distance between me and everyone else on the planet. My name is Summer Ann Burton. And my name's Isaac Fitzgerald. And this is The Tell Show. On the show today, we're going to have the amazing poet and writer, Saeed Jones. We have the pleasure of calling him a co-worker, but he's a pretty fucking incredible guy. He's the best. And Saeed is going to talk to us about letting go. Letting go uh, can mean so many different things to so many different people, um, but it's something that we've all experienced, whether letting go of a loved one, of a friend. Or if you're me, it's something you've never experienced because you're incapable of letting go of anything. <laughs> all of the feelings I've ever had in my life are just stacked up inside my body. <laughs> I've never let go of any of them. I'm still in love with everyone I've ever been in love with. You're like a black hole, but <laughs> yeah. if it doesn't get like blown into nothingness. It like literally just stays there forever. Yeah, my heart is just like a hoarder's cave of junk <laughs> feelings. <laughs> oh, man. So what's your story? Well, it's it's very um this is an episode about letting go. This story is about not being able to let go. <laughs> um, but when I was a teenager, I had a really close friend who stayed at my house a lot. And like we were, she was, she was my best friend for some amount of time. We spent weeks at a time, just like every day together. And I think for a lot of women, like the friendships you have when you're a teenager are basically just like romantic relationships without the sex. Like it was very emotionally intense. We fought, we had ups and downs. She wasn't always a great friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably wasn't always a perfect friend either. I, I'm not, I'm not a saint, but, um, at some point she decided that we shouldn't be friends anymore. And she broke up with me mm-hmm. <laughs> via a very long letter explaining everything that she thought was wrong with me and what a selfish and mean spirited person she thought that I was <laughs> deep down in my heart. Holy shit. Um, which like I, decided that I needed to do whatever I could to win back her friendship. (laughs) And I spent probably two months building the greatest care package that one could ever give to another human. I bought this like briefcase that had flames painted on it and filled it with letters, tapes about my feelings candy that she liked she had this thing for chico sticks so i bought like 60 of them in bulk jesus um and and like just put this package together to like win her back and it it didn't work oh no (laughs) what i still couldn't let go i never let go of it i don't think i've let go of it now oh my god I've never given anyone in my life something that nice. Oh, my gosh. And you gave it to the person who wrote you, like, a multi-page <sighs> letter about why you sucked. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't let go. But I think that you you do let go. Oh, walking away is my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> I love to walk away. 
I'm really excited about our guest today. Uh, he's an award-winning poet. His most recent collection is Prelude to Bruise. If you haven't picked it up, I highly recommend it. He's our culture executive editor here at BuzzFeed. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much, Saeed. We're really excited. Thanks, Samran. I'm excited to get uh, emotionally butt naked with both of you. <laughs> it's all I've ever wanted. I'm emotionally naked right now. <laughs> um, so let's play. Let's play a game. Let's do it. Does everyone know the rules of Never Have I Ever? Could you remind us? Yeah. So we'll go around. I'm going to say never have I ever done something, a thing. And if you have done it, you're going to ring your bell and uh, we'll talk about it. And it's going to be really fun. And then we'll go to the next person. Oh, that's uh, funny. I'm from the South. So, you know, we have to build in a little more shame. So you would <laughs> hold up your hand. And you would have like you would have five, and so right. you know the person with the most to be ashamed of was the person who would run out of fingers first. See, that's hilarious. I always lost. That's hilarious <laughs> that you call it losing because in my mind that's it's winning. winning. <laughs> Same. And I always, Same. yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Glad I glad we checked. <laughs> okay, I can start. Never have I ever had sex in a body of water. Two bells. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how was it? You go first. Uh, <laughs> I have had sex in many bodies of water. Love them all. Uh, I used to work 10 miles off the coast of New Hampshire uh, on an island with no cops in the roads. And all we used to do was have sex in the ocean. And then on our days off, we would go into the port town and go have sex in hot tubs. Sounds sounds great. Oh, um, yeah. It, it, this counts as sex for sure. It was uh, a swimming pool. I was in the fifth grade. Uh and there, there was an era in every, I think, gay man's life in particular, where straight girls will misread signals, and um, and that was me. And I, I didn't know I wasn't out, so I didn't feel comfortable being like I'm not into girls. So I, I would have a lot of these kinds of moments. And I was at a pool party, and uh, a girl was like a little older than me, and started giving me a hand job, like in the middle of this big pool party, and no one else could tell, and I didn't know what to do or say and it was a whole, now I now that I've had you know uh, many hand jobs though you know the bar is kind of low for hand jobs because really at the end of the day who wants a hand job no one no one wants them they're always perfunctory but um it was horrible like it hurt oh, like no. she she was older than me so she was like old enough to know like hand jobs are a thing you do when you you know corner a vulnerable young man in the water um but she thought you should like squeeze the guy's dick like as much as you can and and she thought my like wincing and everything, you know, because people couldn't see what was going on under the water was me like enjoying it. And of course, I was like trying to survive heterosexuality as best I could. <laughs> so I shouldn't be squeezing dicks. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. No. Wow. Learned a lot. I mean, I will have sex in a body of water if that body of water is like a, a pool of lube. like water is like the anti-lubricant it just doesn't seem fun um okay next question next question next question uh never have i ever lied about having a boyfriend or a girlfriend lied in saying that you did have one yeah oh oh said like oh yeah i totally have a boyfriend yeah oh that's yeah 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 i mean 
that's just survival. That's, you know, yeah. it, the, it, the stakes is high out here. Yeah. Still. As a woman, it's like a very common defense mechanism. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. I meant more like as a kid. Oh. Like made up. I a, thought that's what you, yeah. No, yeah. I meant like made this, that up. Is, this isn't a good question for that. Because we, Summer and I were both like, rape culture is real. We <laughs> <laughs> I was, this is your male privilege. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think that I did that as a kid, although I had a lot of friends that did uh, the old like, you know, I have a boyfriend who nobody has ever met, but I've definitely done it to uh, to escape someone. Yeah, terrifying. I, I've used it as an excuse when I just I like, can't come up with a reason to, for someone to leave me alone. Uh, it's your turn. To ask it's my turn. Uh, never have to sex and water about never have i ever um never have i ever sucker punched someone i had a feeling i had a feeling that might let's see be if the case. people can guess whether that bell was me or isaac fitzgerald <laughs> <laughs> um sometimes w- when you're fighting somebody and they're bigger than you mm-hmm. And I want to make that very clear. It's only when the cards are stacked very much against you that it is okay to sucker punch somebody. But that said, that is not how I sucker punch somebody when I sucker punch somebody. Uh, I sucker punch somebody at a bar uh, for just a terrible reason. Uh, I like I was drunk and they were uh, being loud and belligerent, which one might say I saw a little bit of myself in them. Oh, and I walked up to him and I said, look there. Like, I was so drunk. He would, like, it wasn't even like, check out that hot girl or anything like that. I literally was just like, look there. He looked. I punched him and walked out of the bar. It's like you're Damn. living in an alternate universe from somewhere in myself. Like, I just... I, I wish it, I wish a it, scenario in which I would need to do that. I wish... I mean, I was young and I was dumb, but I wish there was like some story of like this big guy... Right. But the, it, no. I was young and I was dumb. The Isaac Fitzgerald story. <laughs> Saeed, you and I have been friends for many years now. We all make mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to get one last. Yeah, I was like, how? <laughs> you been waiting on that one all day. Buddy? Oh yeah. All no, right. Yeah. All right. No, no, we have um, very close friends. Yeah, very, close very, friends. very close friends. Um, but you've never told me this story. I haven't told this story before, and I think it's because I needed to get to the point at which it was truly the past. Saeed, where were you when this story started? Um, I was in Barcelona, Spain. Um, in 2011, my mother passed away. She had a heart attack the night before Mother's Day, um, and she'd had a lifelong heart condition. And uh, it was still very sudden because, of course, heart disease isn't something that's um, physically apparent all the time. Someone looks fine, um, and then they are not with you. Um, and a few months after her passing, I went to Spain um, and was there by myself for a couple of weeks and um, and I stayed at a hostel and um, it was a very sociable, small but intimate, but like sociable hostel. People had dinner and lunch and spent a lot of time with each other, which was nice. But I didn't tell anyone why I was there. I, you know, I would just say, oh, I'm a writer. I'm just visiting. Uh, yeah. Why were you there? I was there because the kind of initial phase of grief was over, you know, in, in terms of 
being in the hospital and the funeral and, you know, packing up my mom's apartment and, you know, kind of that phase where you're very busy. And then you enter the next phase, which I think is actually really difficult. It's the phase when everything's quiet and people aren't calling on you constantly to check on you and you just kind of have to deal. And I I just didn't know what to do. I had left my job um, because it was just too much. I'd been teaching high school. Um, my mother, you know, was uh, the closest member of my family, you know, to me. Um, we were just so close. We spoke every day. And so that was, you know, perhaps the most difficult experience with grief um, I will experience in my life. Did you guys, were you, did you have siblings? Did you come up together? Uh, I was an only child um, and my parents divorced when uh, I was in kindergarten or so. And, um, and my father was mostly out of the picture for most of my life. So, you know, it was, um, I was on my own. And up until that point in your life, it seemed like it was very you and her versus the world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, when I was growing up, um, I think both the though my family though it wasn't an ongoing conversation, but my sexuality and being queer, you know, was clearly an increasing tension in the family that that pushed me away from our extended family, from like my grandparents and uncles and aunts. And my mother practiced uh, Nichiren Buddhism. And that for our very conservative uh, Christian family was a major divisive issue. So by the time I was in my mid-20s, I would maybe visit family if she asked me to. And so I felt um, a bit orphaned um, by grief. And you had been. And I had been, absolutely. She was gone. Yeah, she was gone. There's no there's no euphemism. So I decided to travel. Um, I've always loved traveling. My mom worked for Delta Airlines um, for for several decades. Um, and, you know, I was like, let's go. We always wanted to go on an international trip together, and we weren't able to. So so I bought a ticket. And, um, and yeah, so I, I get to Barcelona, and uh, I just wasn't ready and this is something you just live with for the rest of your life with grief like it will come up right people will ask what does your mom do for a living or where do your parents live and like you you were just going to have to find a way to work through that conversation I wasn't there yet so I would just say I'm a writer and I just always wanted to see Spain which was also true on one of these days um, you know friends from the hostel and I we we went to one of the beaches and the beaches are just gorgeous just absolutely beautiful like i couldn't even handle the the view you know you just you gasp can you try to describe it to me sure i mean it's the you know i uh i drew when i was growing up a lot with uh color pencils i would just like spend a lot of time drawing color pencils and the ocean was the color blue that you would <laughs> pick you know when you were a little kid it was that 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 jewel blue you know and the, and the greens and just everything and you kind of go this can't be real like water actually can't look like that <laughs> especially living in the new york city area right like the, water, the hudson is not this color blue the water you know? is gray alas <laughs> it we're lucky if it's gray um so yeah, I, I, it was just, it was gorgeous. And I was with these friends and, you know, we had sangria and it was so bright. And at different moments we would like kind of break off and some people would go swim out. And so, you know, I, I at one point just kind of got up and, and headed out into the water and, and swam. And, and I remember noticing that the waves were almost 
seductive. Like it was almost kind of like a, a deceptive calm. It looked very beautiful. There weren't a lot of, you know, um, white crests, but it was like, whoa, this is actually kind of intense. And, you know, you kind of go with it. And and then the, the beauty and the serenity of the surrounding kind of made me even more relaxed. And then, you know, eventually I, I ended up being much farther out in the water than I intended. This is almost like a fairy tale. I feel like the, the yeah. enchanting. That's what power it felt like. Yeah, yeah. And I think I was, you know, certainly at that moment in my life, you know, when you're grief struck, which is how I I kind of call that phase of my life. You know, you're really looking for anything um, to to make you feel safe again, to make you feel whole. And so I think one of the things you know you begin to do is you begin to search for something to create a sense of peace to create a sense of wholeness and you know the beauty in Barcelona I thought would would be it and so I'm out there and I'm just in the middle of the water and I'm probably somewhat drunk um, and I realize I'm really far from shore and I'm also starting to realize I'm tired um, like physically tired, but also like deeply emotionally, like existentially exhausted. I'm just over it. And the the moment I realized like, oh, my legs are kind of tired. I'm kind of tired of paddling. It, it was it was like another wave actually over my body. I was like, actually, I'm tired of everything. My name, Saeed, means happy and fortunate in Arabic. And my mom put a lot of thought into that name. And we always were talking about happiness and how happy, that's who I am. And and so in grief, I, I felt like I wasn't even who I was anymore. I couldn't feel this way and be Saeed. Um, and so I'm just thinking about this as I'm just like kind of putting less and less effort into swimming. And then finally, you know, I'm just kind of debating back and forth and I'm just like, why not just let go? Like, why not just stop? You know, like you are really, really tired and you are alone in your family and people commit suicide all the time because of grief. Um, And I kind of had made up my mind essentially that I just wasn't going to put any effort into it. And I felt like that was um, a compromise. And by the time I like totally let go and I remember like feeling my arms like kind of hit like, you know, the sides of my body and I just let my legs drag. And I'd been, I mean, many, many yards out um, into the water. Um, the moment I did that, that's when I felt my toes brush against the sand. I think I'd been so caught up kind of in in this debate that I was kind of having with myself. I hadn't noticed that, in fact, the waves, though they were very overwhelming, had slowly been surely pushing me back to shore. And it was actually the the second time um, in that period of months that I had thought about very seriously killing myself. I know Isaac, I've told him that story before. And and I felt like it was the second time that my life, you know, spoke back to me, you know, and, and literally said, no, you, we're not, we're not going to, we, you know, whatever you want to, however you want to think of the universe or your life, but like, we are not going to give up on you. And then I, I just walked out of the water and it was so 
bizarre, I guess is the word, and that I just walked back onto the beach and joined these friends who, again, had no idea about, you know, what I'd been going through. They didn't know what had happened out in the water because um, it wasn't like I had been struggling or thrashing about. And, and they didn't realize, you know, that I was really working through grief. They just saw me come back to the to the blanket and, you know, hand me, you know, a glass of sangria. I think that it's really interesting because, like, it seems like you have a very clear memory of it. Um, and I think sometimes that's formed by telling a story a lot, and this isn't that kind of story. So, like, why do you think it's stuck with you? Um, I think part of it is, um, you know, the the setting, it was just so vivid. You know, as a poet, images are, are very, very powerful. And I think also it's it, it lives with the story lives inside me as a counterpoint to the moments of um, what I think of as clarifying joy. You know, there have been, and, and, and I always say, like, I'm so happy I'm still here. I'm so happy that my life had faith in me. And and so it exists because it, 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 it becomes the, um, the silhouette of just these moments that I'm able to have because I'm still alive. I'm just tremendous joy. Wonderful, wonderful things have happened. And so I think it exists because it's I'm reminded, you know, and so when I am, you know, so happy and over the moon and my friends love to um, tease me, but I do say this all the time, what a time to be alive is something I say when I'm so happy. And that's what I mean, you know, and I know what a time to be alive because I know what it feels like to almost not be alive. Would you say that you've reclaimed your name? I think so. But I, I'm a I'm a different person, you know. I I think I am both, you know. If, if the meaning of Saeed is happy and fortunate, I think I'm happier and more fortunate than I ever imagined I could be. Well, I'm glad that the tide brought you in and didn't bring you out. <laughs> same, yeah. same. <laughs> yeah, it's almost. I mean, like I think sometimes, like I actually like laugh to myself when I think about it. You know, mm-hmm. not in a not in a condescend. I mean, it's, it's that was a very serious moment, but it's like my goodness, you know, you just. Li- your your life is big your life mm-hmm. is big and you know w- what a misfortune to have kind of to cut that short you know yeah i mean it, it almost it it's like your life is just sort of a series of survivals like getting through is the beautiful thing and the Absolutely. thing that leads you to feel really happy mm-hmm. yeah it's funny it's the theme is letting go but i do think you're right in that it could also be survival Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think I think you have to let go of something to survive, you know. And I think for me, that was kind of the moment where I was going. I needed to let go of this ambivalence that I I had about my own value. That you know, and and the the broader thing too, you know, to be so sad and and grief struck about my mother to think about ending my own life in some ways is very offensive to the memory of my mother. But I I had to get to this point to kind of understand that. And so for me, it was like really, you know, I thought it was letting go of my life, but in fact it was about letting go of this, this, um, this lack of value, this lack of self-worth. It's time for the thing. The three questions. Said, are you excited? I am excited and terrified. <laughs> so we have these questions. We ask every guest on the podcast. There are 
Uh, well, let's do three of them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> didn't know what you were teeing me up for there. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, what was your last kiss like? <laughs> I just need you to know, uh, dear listeners, that that both Summer and Isaac just like pivoted their heads <laughs> toward me. My last kiss uh, was uh, comical. Um, I think darkly comical. Um, I, I spent the summer in France and um, my last night in the country, I, w- I was in Paris and I'd been out bar hopping with friends. And and then I went to like this like cruising bar and it was all dark and like James Franco is going to make a movie about it like any day now. And uh, I just like <laughs> just hooked up with this like North African dude who was really, really hot, but we didn't know how to communicate and uh the sex got a little awkward i would think he wanted to do one thing and he was actually saying he wanted to do something else and then we just kind of kissed it out and went our separate ways kissed it out (laughs) that's beautiful yeah cut our losses (laughs) when was the last time you cried um i think it was i think it was still uh at some point this summer do you ever like just get drunk and then you are just sad and you don't know why and your friends are like what's wrong and you're like i just i i absolutely don't know and and that... that's because alcohol is a depressant i was oh. about to be like does that ever not happen <laughs> is a better question <laughs> yeah no i just like i just i just started crying like i just and couldn't stop and my friend was like okay i'm walking you i'm walking you back to the apartment site you know living the dream um okay our last question is um what's wrong with you oh god (laughs) uh what's wrong with me i think right now is that um i'm really really focused on my life myself my career getting it together and doing the work and so the the problem is that then i forget that i'm living aside other people and i have friends and i should check on them and and they do not exist to serve my mission that's not what my friends are here for um and so what's wrong with me is that i i'm actually having to actively work on that and and not take my friends for granted just because i'm i'm so focused on what i'm trying to do damn right (laughs) and isaac can say that because he's one of my best friends Saeed is an award-winning poet. His latest collection is called Prelude to Bruise, and he's also the executive editor of Culture at BuzzFeed. So you can read him online as well as at your favorite local bookstore. Thank you so much for sharing that story, Saeed. Yeah, thanks for being a guest. Thank you, guys. And here's something really important. If you ever need help or need to talk to someone, you can always call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline anytime. 1-800-273-TALK, which is 8255. Next time on The Tell Show, we're going to talk about long distance. We sent producer Julia Furlan out on the streets to ask people if they think that long distance relationships can work. Do long distance relationships work? Sometimes it depends on the situation. They don't. Long distance, no. I've never tried it. It's, it's incredibly difficult for all the reasons you think it's going to be difficult. And then more so. Trust is a mother. And guess what? I can't trust nobody that's in Florida. 
It's a vicious cycle. It's not going to work out. You're destined for disappointment. I think it's all about trust and loyalty and love. Anything can work. Don't even tempt yourself. Don't get started. I am currently in a long-distance relationship. It's working because it keeps spice going. Like, he don't get on my nerves. Okay, so my wife and I were in a long-distance relationship for about a year and a half. She left the college town we were in. She came back to New York. Um, it did work. You know, we talk on the phone a lot. We talk, like, on the computer a lot. And, you know, TMI, like, you know, she'd come and we'd fuck a lot. And I'd get a lot of UTIs and a lot of cranberry juice. So, you know, like, that might have been the only down point of being long-distance, but we made it work. Well, I'm current. I'm a widower. Um... And I don't know if you would call that like long distance or, or whether it's actually a very close relationship. Like because I do feel like, you know, I do feel like I'm somehow in touch. And it's funny, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. show is produced by Meg Kramer with editorial oversight from Jenna Weiss Berman and production help from Julia Furlon and Eleanor Kagan. Thanks so much to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios for recording the show. And thanks to Love Inks who composed our music. Please email us anytime at thetellshow at buzzfeed.com and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. We'll be back with another episode next week.